what an honor it is to bring in a cat, an incredibly versatile person in general who can, uh, who kind of wound up in <clears throat> defense contracting, but before that made a name as a multi-instrumentalist and an incredible studio musician, uh, as well as a band leader uh, in his own right, uh, working with uh, really uh, being a founding member of Steely Dan and also uh, joining the Dewey Brothers, and it was interesting because when I saw this press release go out last week about this tour, um, well, it was just very interesting to see the kind of places that he's playing, and I'm curious about what his intentions are for this upcoming tour. Jeff Skunk Baxter, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, sir, and uh, yeah, I haven't quit playing. I, I still, uh, you know, want to protect the country, but I also want to rock and roll for <laughs> Absolutely. No, you know, it's funny because um, I have to... Get, go ahead. No, no I just say, I, I read articles that, you know, 10, 10 people who have changed careers. I haven't changed careers at all. You know, I just want to serve my country, so you can do both. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I completely agree, and uh, I, I, I just have to ask you, I'm going to go on a hunch here, but um, I've talked to so many cats that um, loved Manny's music, and I'm wondering if that was the place. I know you worked there, but I'm wondering if you bought your first pedal steel there. Well, actually, I worked at Jimmy's across the street. You worked at okay. So the again, Wikipedia just says Manny's. We've got to get to that career. Who? What was Jimmy's? Right. Uh, Jimmy's was right across the street. Jim and Frank Squalachi hired me to play. Hired me to work on vacations because I was going to boarding school in uh, the U.S., but I was living in Mexico City. So instead of going back and forth all the time, I would just stay in New York and, and I and I would work at Jimmy's. And then I eventually I ended up working at Dan Armstrong's shop. All these stores on Forty Eighth Street. The connection to Manny's is Henry Goldrick, who was sort of a, a guru there for many, many, many years. Kind of. Uh, looked out for me because, you know, I was 3,000 miles away from home. And uh, it just, we became very good friends, and he just always kept an eye on me. So Manny's always had a very special place in my heart. And Henry Goldrick, um, God bless him, what an incredible human being. Uh, you know, you meet people in your life are just the right people at the right time. Uh, Tim Jacremo was another one of those people who ran E. Wurlitzer Music in Boston. I used to repair guitars for those guys, well, for a lot of people in Boston. And one day I walked in to E. Wurlitzer, and there was a beautiful Emmons double-neck D10 pedal steel oh my God. sitting in the middle of the floor. And I walked over to it, and I looked at it, and I must have stared at it for about <laughs> 30 seconds, and Tim came over and said, Take it, I'll take 10% out of every a guitar that you repair. I didn't even have to ask him. Oh, man. Again, those are the kind of people in your life uh, that you can't, life it becomes so much better. And Henry, at Danny's, I had asked him, you know, I, when, when I first started doing the defense stuff, I said, you know, there are a lot of people that are, you know, think I'm crazy for doing this stuff, and what do you think? And it was on a Saturday. And, you know, Henry and I had known Henry for so many years, and he said, let's go upstairs and talk. 
right in the middle of the most crowded, busiest time. So it just goes to show you. And then he said, you know, tell me what you think. And we talked and talked. And then he finally said, you know, you have to do this. You need to do this. And uh, so here's a guy who supposedly just ran a music store uh, who was also one of the, one of my mentors on a subject that had nothing to do with music. So No, no, this is, uh, first of all, this is like mine. I, so I understand Mexico City. And then there was Taft, uh, but you actually went, you were, went yeah, back. that's where I was going to school in, when, uh, at Taft. Right, so I'm just trying to get the idea of, like, you had already been committed to, to defending our country at that point, when you went to talk to him. Uh, no, because um, at, when I was at Taft, no, I was just going to, to prep school, but I, because at the time, I was working Jimmy's and going across the street to to see Henry, mm-hmm. who just who become a friend. Years later, I always kept in touch with Henry, and I always go down to Forty Eighth Street anyway. I was a you know Forty Eighth Street kid, and one of you know later on in life, I went down there to talk to Henry, and that's when. Oh, okay. So it was late. That is so beautiful, man. Yeah. So you were just like, can you like talk a little bit about? The calling you had for this, uh, did you feel like, I mean, you were too young to serve in Vietnam. Um, why, why was, what, what was the calling for that? I'm 45 and, you know, it's like, there's a lot of ambivalence towards, um, well, just in general, there's just a lot of ambivalence towards everything these days, but I'm just trying to figure out when you got that calling in, inside to, to defend this, this country. Well, I showed up for my draft physical, and it just didn't take me. Uh, and years later, I mean, my dad was six years active, 20 years reserve. Wow. So I'd grown up in a family that was certainly uh, oriented, let's say, towards patriotism and defending my country. Sure. And especially when you grow up outside the U.S., you have a very interesting view of your home country or you see it from from a from a different perspective but it's just um i don't know i I think my dad had instilled in me those principles of uh of patriotism and and service and since i didn't get to serve before when the opportunity came uh it was kind of off the wall i just my dad always said if you got a good idea you write it down yeah so i had an idea about how to convert a Navy uh, air defense system, uh, Aegis, the Aegis weapon system. Uh, it's integrated system, missiles, radar, um, communications. Uh, how to convert it to do missile defense. And so I wrote the paper, like my dad just said, and write it down. So I gave it to a U.S. congressman who I've been doing some work with uh, because of my law enforcement work with LAPD and and some other uh, law enforcement agencies. And, and he then gave it to the vice chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, who then called Congressman Robacherbach and said, what is this guy from, like, Raytheon? Or <laughs> like, you know, he's a guitar player for the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> so I get this call from this the is... vice chairman, and he says, would you be willing to serve on the House Armed Services Committee 
and put uh, as a civilian advisor on missile defense. And I said, yes, I, I certainly. And then that's kind of where it all wow. got started. And then uh, in 93, after the first attack on the World Trade Center, <laughs> I got a call from them. some other folks in the intelligence community and said, listen, we're, we're putting together a law enforcement working group. We got plenty of uh, intelligence agents, but we have no cops. And you are, you know, you have <clears throat> already all these clearances for the Department of Energy, Department of Defense. Would you be willing to come in and be a part of this law enforcement working group? And I said, yes. And then that's how I got over, went over to the, uh, to the IC. Well, I mean, you're, this is just profound information. Again, it, if there was one thing you could tell younger cats in this country about the profound nature of how lucky we are to live in this country, being that you were in Mexico City and you, I guess you might have hopped around a little bit more, but what would it be? What would be one, a couple of things to be grateful about, um, about this country when you see it from the outside? Well, I remember one time I was up on the Thai-Burma border. Uh, we were doing something up there. I can't really talk too much about it's it. It's okay, yeah. Uh, um, we were bringing refugees across the border from Burma. They were being pursued uh, by the um, by the Burmese army, and they wanted to come into Thailand. Many of them were children. And we had copies of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the U.S. Constitution translated into Hmong, Hmong, Karinin, Wa, the different languages that you would find in Burma, Thailand. Um, right. And people were coming 100 miles through the jungles just to get their hands on those documents to read them. And then I remember... It was a very tough day, long day, and again, I can't get into too many details, but we had a lot of children, and the children were frightened because the Burmese army was literally shooting at them. Uh, it was a busy day, let's just say let's that. Let's just say and, that, yeah. Um, it started raining, and, and uh, I was up there with Dana and a couple of other people, Congressman Robach, and they said, we got to do something. Kids are scared to death. So somebody gave me a guitar made out of a cigar box, had four strings on it, and said, you got to do something. So we gathered the kids together. None of them spoke English. And we taught them how to sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Oh, my we God. We divided them into three groups. And we taught them how to sing the round together. We did that for about a half an hour, 45 minutes, until the kids calmed down. So all I can say is, would not have believed the what they called the hospital, what they called the refugee camps. And still, these people came through the jungles to get copies of these special documents in their hands. So if you, by anyone out there who thinks, yes, this country has problems, nothing's perfect, but people are willing to die to come and even read about this country. So uh, that is so, I, mean, I just got chills, man. That is so profound. And I know it's, that is just scratching the surface. Um, 
the, by the way, if you're a musician, yeah, you're a freedom, you're a freedom fighter, because they were cutting the hands. The Taliban was cutting the hands off of musicians in Afghanistan, and well, that's one of the reasons. Well, uh, again, I can't get into too much stuff, but piss me off. Yeah, I. And, yeah, go ahead. And Danny, you know, you know, Cooch, Danny Korshwar? Uh dear, I love him to death. Uh, so much, done a bunch of interviews with him. Yeah. So Cooch is an old buddy. We've known each other since the '60s. And at one of the NAM shows, I, you know, we had talked, and Danny got up at the NAM show and explained to people that every note that you play as a musician, that you're a freedom fighter. The reason they cut the hands off of musicians in Afghanistan is because they were frightened to death of people who had the key to other people's hearts. All that stuff is all fear-based. And the fact that a musician could open someone's heart, scared them so much that they wanted to prevent them from playing music. And Cooch got up there for a half an hour, and it was beautiful to watch. Oh, man. And when he came off stage, I went, geez, Cooch, that was awesome. <laughs> Damn it. You know, you know, I've been around you long enough to know, and I just felt I had to say something. So all you folks out there, this country is very special. There's nothing like it. And it's certainly worth your time and effort to to try to uh, contribute as much as you can. You know, the reason I brought up the the pedal steel, I I'm curious uh, about I'm curious about um, like fire in the beautiful ho- instrument. In yeah, the no, the fire. I'm just curious, like, what were some of the records? Was there any record before Fire in the Hole that I mean, outside of Weldon Myrick and all these guys from Nashville that were playing the pedal steel on country music. I mean, were you, was the fire in the hole, one of the earliest rock tunes to incorporate the pedal steel? I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. I mean, there's some great players. You, you mentioned Weldon, uh, uh, buddy Emmons, Curly Chalker. Yeah. Lloyd green. Yeah. Uh, oh God. Yeah. Lloyd yeah. green. I mean, Paul Franklin now out there in Nashville, just killer player. Unreal. Um, but I always looked at and Sneaky Pete, who also oh, I'm flying, was, yeah, okay. uh, you know, looked at the pedal steel kind of like I did from a kind of sideways, you know, point of view. <laughs> what does that uh, mean? What does that mean, by the way? Because you played guitar. Well, a lot of guys, you know, looked at the pedal steel as a country instrument. Now, guys like Buddy Emmons and people like that would play bebop and classical music. I mean, they were looking at it as a absolutely, you know, sort of absolutely. But most cats really didn't see it that way. So <clears throat> I remember when we did uh, East St. Louis Toodaloo in, the, in Steely Dan. That's a lot of The Duke Ellington song. Uh, we're all, I mean, we're all jazz fans anyway. And it was fun to dissect the song and each of us took a different part. Um, uh, Walter took the, uh, the trumpet part and played it with uh, this, the, the, the speaker box. And I transcribed the trombone solo. Wow. Played it on pedal steel simply because I thought, okay, here's an instrument that has slide. Trombone has a slide. You can move pitch between instruments. What the hell? Let's see where this is going to go. So I just, as I as I been playing steel now for god 40 some years 40 almost 50 years uh the instrument constantly 
amazes me. I've got a MIDI version of a pedal steel, which just is the frightening instrument. You know, you could do choirs, string sections, all kinds of stuff. And to me, the voice of the steel is something that's so special. That's on this Speed of Heat album that I did. There's a song called The Rose, which is the one that uh, Bette Miller had done. Right. But I had been asked by Guitar Player Magazine when I was on their board of directors or board of advisors for the 25th anniversary to play something while they ran the pictures of, you know, our fallen comrades in the music business, guitar player. And so I thought, the Rose is such a beautiful melody. I'm just going to go out and play it uh, a cappella. Absolutely. The voice is so beautiful. But as I got to the end of the first verse, Adrian Ballou came out and plugged in. <laughs> I love Adrian. He's one of my favorite people. And by the time I got to the end of the second verse, I had a keyboard player, drummer, bass player, plus Adrian. And I thought, someday I want to do this song. And I dedicated it to my dad. And on this Speed of Heat album, you'll hear the whole first verse. It's all a cappella steel. The voice of the instrument is so compelling. Oh, my God. Absolutely profound. I mean, this is I, there's just so much going on here because you, but by the way, we're also, despite the age, the age difference, we're both graduates of the College of Communication at Boston University. Oh, you, you really? Yeah, man. I and and it was so classic because I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just gonna roll this out here. Is that I skunk was was skunk going to? There was a place called the Psychedelic yeah, Supermarket. That that was a place for maybe Ultimate Spinach, or were you going to Club Forty Seven, or were you going everywhere? All those places. Oh my god. Um, played the um, certainly played the. the the tea party in both of its iterations. Oh my God. Um, played the surf clubs and I played in the combat zone. That's what, okay, no, let's talk about that. The, what, the, that was the strip clubs. You played, you were playing, were you playing soul jazz, organ jazz there? Or what were, what was going on there? Playing with the Sid Caesar trio. Oh my which God. Was an organ player, a drummer, and myself. Dude, this is making my year, man. Are you that kidding was, me, dude? I was playing at the intermission lounge, and you, if you, and the crazy horse next door, which had all the chicken wire. That's what I, I mentioned that to Dan Akron, and I think that's where he got the idea of it for the for the Blues Brothers. Yeah, but you're, I mean, you're young, so the combat zone when we were down there, this was in the the like the mid the late sixties. Absolutely, this is insane. That was insanity. Okay, I want to. I just want before you go on because. I've talked to cats that were there in the mid there was a murder there in the mid 70s and it was still hopping in the early 70s. What was that was it a mafia run place where you playing milestones for 20 minutes? I mean, I just need to hear exactly what was going on in the combat zone. Whether it was run by the mafia, I I do not know. I knew I did know that for a while on the Sid Caesar trio, our manager was a guy named Mambo Willie, <laughs> who, who was a pimp and a manager. Uh, nice cat. I mean, eventually somebody shot him. <laughs> right. I mean, it was going to uh, bound to happen. You know, that's you know? the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> the whole, I mean, what do you do when you have 6,000 sailors all coming into like a, a six-block radius? Oh, my right? God. It's beyond insane. 
Um, but it was fun to play. I played a lot of crazy clubs. Hell, when I came out to Los Angeles uh, and started playing uh, at the Palomino Club, also started playing clubs out in Lancaster and Palmdale and up in Bakersfield. That stuff could get pretty wild sometimes. I mean, dude, this is – I do not want to – I want to be very clear. Were you in Warren Towers? Where were you living, by the way, like what, in your freshman year at BU? Say again, sorry? I was just curious about what what, what, what uh, dorms you were living in. I lived in uh, – at. Uh, was it Warren Towers? West Campus. West, West – that's where I lived. Yeah, where the five football stadium. And you would – and so it's it's fair to say that – You'd be James Montgomery. That's where we met. Well, that's that was the other. But but I just want to be clear. Like you were by freshman year, sophomore year, you were playing six nights a week, three four sets a night. Um, no, it was after that because I only went to BU for one year. <clears throat> I didn't graduate. Wow! So you, you graduated from SBC. I only went for a year. I took a leave of absence. Maybe I should go back. Yeah. I don't know if they'd have me, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, get the honorary degree. So you, um, you, <laughs> you, you, uh, but you were you were playing so much and gigging so much, you were making enough bread. You didn't feel the need to have to finish school, right? Well, I got the opportunity to join Ultimate Finish, and I was already out playing bass for Tim Buckley, and I was playing in this really wacky band called the Holy Modal Rounders. Well, that's what I I could not. That's what I I couldn't believe. That that because that is folk music. And, uh, Steve Weber. Oh man! How did you wind up connecting? Was that the Cambridge connection of the folk scene there? How did you connect with those guys? I, you know, I'm not sure. Roger, a really cool uh, set of drums that uh, he was playing around the area, and I guess somebody had seen it, or I'm you. Know, I wish I could. I wish I knew how that how I ended up in that band. It is I such did. a blip on the. It is so important. I mean, I get it. It was a long time ago. It's just it. That band was. I know cats that played in later iterations of that band, and it was a wild scene. Well, it was. It, uh, Steve and uh, Peter were. We used to play with the Fugs, right? And, and Tuli Kufferberg and those guys. And uh, that's, I, I met them when I was playing in the village, when I was still going to, to boarding school. So uh, somehow or other, maybe maybe we got connected up again. I, I, I'm i sorry. I just it's can't. okay. No, Skunk, I, I want to be clear. You were, taking, you were taking Metro North from Connecticut into New York at boarding school? Uh, Metro North. Well, what I'm saying is like, like, like you know, I'm just trying to get the idea because you talk about Cooch in the flying in the flying machine with James Taylor, David Clayton, Thomas. All those cats were down in the village. Yeah. But, but you were in Connecticut. Would you drive in or would you take the train? Oh no, I would take the train down during the vacations and stay with friends in New York. Wow! And so you were already, uh, even though you weren't necessarily of age, you were already. I mean, you you were. Did you did you play with? Did you have a band there? Were you playing with with us, or were you just sitting in and jamming? No, sitting in jamming a lot. We had a band that uh, a prep school band that we actually played at the World's Fair, and then we played some in the village. Uh, and then I was I played some shows with uh, uh, the band at the um, 
uh, the Goldbug Cafe. Wow. And then there was a million clubs around Plus, this really whacked out called the Vic Goldring Orchestra. It was all like 80-year-old guys, but sax, organ, drums, and I was the kid at weddings and the bar mitzvahs that would stand up and play one Chuck Berry song every 20 songs. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm reading out of fake books, and that's where I'm learning all the standards. Whoa, sorry, I, wanted, I hear, need to hear the name of this band again. What was the name? Vic Goldring Orchestra. Thank you so much. You're making my year. This was a bunch of... We played a lot at the Tivoli Terrace out of Long Island. And, uh, oh, my God. Uh, oh, my God. No, I was going to say, the band The band that, that Skunk's referring to from Taft is King Thunder and the Lightning Bolts. Yes, and the, and the, and the rubber band. But King Thunder and the Lightning Bolts, that was when I, my first year there. Uh, Randy Palomar was a senior and put together this rock band and we started playing started playing uh, all the dances and then a couple of guys from that band we formed a band called uh the rubber band right and we started i got i started getting in trouble uh you know how it is you know you're 14 15 come on 16 of course yeah you go to girls schools yeah get in trouble and anyway so they said you can't play any more school dances so the, band, the the school boycotted the first dance that we didn't play at. So the dean said, well, okay, it's okay. They can play. And then we started getting gigs around at all the, the girls' schools, St. Margaret's, <laughs> Ethel Walker, Emma Willard. And because we were all the troublemakers, uh, we were uh, part of this group called the Headwaiters. We were the ones that, you know, they wanted to keep us in a group so he'd keep an eye on us. But the dean... Mr. Oscarson, Donald Oscarson, God bless his soul, really cool guy. He said, okay, I'm getting calls from all of these schools. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, why don't you manage the band? Oh, man. You know, so he took, we gave him 5%, and he would answer the calls to all these girls' schools. And a couple of friends of ours from, from in town would drive us out there, and we would play these gigs so it was kind of wacky you know and we even finally the, the school decided that they had to give us credit i mean the dance band they had nobody ever they never played anywhere ne nowhere you guys were touring man gigs. oh my god so well i guess we did tour we did tour of all the girls schools. absolutely yeah and uh oski was taking five percent and it was perfect couldn't beat that did you i mean so did you meet, did you first meet Buckley? I mean, he was, he was infatuated with Fred Neal. Did you meet him when you were headed to the city or did you meet him in Boston? I met him in Boston because again, I'm working in Dave Schechter from Schechter Guitars and I had our, a guitar store called the Burbank Street Guitar Shop. Wow. We were building and repairing guitars and I was doing a lot of custom work from, from having learned so much from Dan Armstrong when I was working at Dan's place on 48th Street. So every musician on the planet would come in and want either some custom work done or repairs and stuff. So I think that's where I met Tim Buckley. He brought in a Guild F50, uh, I think it was, that needed repair. And then he said he needed a bass player. I said, <laughs> well, okay, sure. 
So I, I grabbed a Hagstrom Viking bass and started doing some shows with him. In some of those places that you were talking about, Club 47, uh, you know, places at Cambridge. Yeah. Where, was he, was he, was there, I was, I'm curious about, like, did you, did you play the bass fiddle? Because, like, I remember talking to David Friedman, a great vibes player, and he said that Tim's bands didn't they were drummerless bands. And, and actually, it was some of the closest things. I mean, it was folk music. But in terms of, like, the jazz concept of improvisation, it was about as pretty close to that as you could get. Well, yeah, there was no drummer. C.C. Carter Collins. That's right, Congas, yes. Yeah, it was, our, it was a percussion killer. Unreal, dude. Killer. Unreal. And uh, so we had this very unique band, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Did you, um, did you make it... I often like to think that I'd like to have gone up to... Uh, you know, uh, Small's Paradise. Did you get to go see Grant Green or Wes and those cats? When I was a kid in the village, I would go to the village gate, top of the gate, uh, and see all of those guys. And my dad used to take me to, uh, I'm trying to think of a place on 52nd Street. That's uh, Judy Singleton and those guys. Uh, well, getting old is a bitch. It's all right. No, I'm saying, so you, did you ever, I mean, did you, I guess my, like, you obviously, you learned the standards in that band, but did you ever have um, that that jazz life? I mean, we're, we're, at that time in music, I mean, did you just want to be a sort of a, a master of all, jack of all trades, or, or was there ever a... I just wanted to play the guitar. Yeah. And, and up at Dan Armstrong's shop, I mean, the guys that were hanging out at that shop, Sam Brown. Are you kidding me, dude? My hero, dude. These guys. Oh, and my. I'm just a snot-nosed little kid. So Dan hands me a guitar with four bass strings, two bass strings, and four guitars, four regular guitar singers with a Gretsch. said, your job is to comp chords and play bass line. <laughs> So, <laughs> yes, and so I learned dude. that style of playing. And when I ran into Chet Atkins, his guitar player, we had, we Chet and I had done something together, and he, the, his guitar player said, "Where did you learn that?" I said, I, "That's where I learned it from, you know, being with Danny and those guys, because he could play that style as well." And he had a guitar with two bass strings and four regular strings. So hanging around those cats, uh, I mean, it doesn't get any better. Any deal, like. God, Come on, what dude. A guitarist. What a bebopper. Jesus. So, um, to me, being in, immersed in, I, I'd say it was Guitar 101. You know, At the time, this, this is fast. I mean, you, you already were basically, uh, I mean, you had so much experience, but at the time in the early 70s in LA, Louis Shelton, Dean Parks, uh, oh, yeah. Larry Carlton, I'm like, Skunk, where was the. It wasn't, how did you, you couldn't just waltz into the studios. I mean, did you must have had a connection. How did you wind up moving? I mean, it's funny because all those, those early Steely albums have such a, I mean, obviously there's a song Brooklyn, but they have like an East Coast feel to them. But I'm like, Skunk went to the West. He went to LA. How did you get into the studios? I uh, started, first thing I did when I got out here was uh, went to work at a place called Valley South. 
repairing and building guitars. Of course. And you meet everybody, every guitar player, because we were really the, you know, one of the premier places to do that. And then next thing I knew, guys were saying, hey, you know, I got a date. I need a sub. Can you do it? And I just, I don't know, folded into the studio scene. So you, did you, uh, how quickly after that did you meet uh, Steely? I mean, were they actually recording out there, or how did that work? Well, I met Walter Becker and Donald Fagan in Boston when Gary Katz, the producer for Steely Dan, Legend, yeah. was, was uh, producing a band called The Bead Game. Great Boston band. Wow. And I was doing a session in that same studio. Uh, and Gary heard me play guitar, and he said, would you come down to New York to play on a Linda Hoover album, this lady that he was producing? And the songwriters are these two guys named Becker and Fagan. You don't know them, but would you come down and do it? And uh, I said, uh, sure. Uh, ha- you know, happy to do it, because I was commuting back and forth between Boston and New York at the time. Uh, and I went down there, and that's when I met them. And they said, "Well, you know, I've never really heard anybody play guitar like that. I've never <laughs> heard anybody write material like this." So we all said that sort of whoever gets their nose under the tent, uh, everybody's going to call everybody else, and maybe we'll form a band. And they got a publishing deal out here. They said, "Let's form this band." They said, "We need a singer." So I said, "Well, I knew Dave Palmer uh, from." Uh, doing gigs in New York and Jimmy Hodder was the drummer for the B game. Great singer, great drummer. And then they, uh, they had a good friend, Denny Diaz, who's the other guitar player. And there we go. You know, did you, some of those later albums I've talked once they got into, uh, you know, I've talked to Dean, Chuck Rainey, Keltner, and you know, there was so much, so many machinations, different rhythm sections, uh, you know, you get different stories here and there. Those early, I mean, Countdown to Ecstasy, My Daughters, we live on that album. When you, when you look back at those first couple of albums, did you, was it a lot less sort of, because it was more of a, I don't want to say a family band, but a band, like you said, whoever gets their nose under the tent first, did, did a lot of those early tunes on those early Steely albums, were they first, second takes, and was every, or were you all hitting live at the same time? No, a lot of the stuff was going in and doing overdubs. Really? It was crafted. Oh, you know, again, uh, we were, uh, Jimmy was a studio drummer. I was a studio guitar player. I mean, we just, to me, that that's the way you made records. I didn't, you know, I, I would, I had done a few live albums, but I was, you know, I'm a session rap, so it makes perfect sense to me to go out it that way. One final question for you, Skunk, um, is how, when was the, I mean, you've met everybody before you, some in some cases, collaborated with them, but uh, I have to believe that you must have run into uh, Bob Weir at some point and the Grateful Dead. I mean, I, I had no idea that you actually played with Bobby in the Midnights with Kenny Gradney and Bobby Cochran. It, I made, produced a record with them. That, that, that's, so was that was that the first time you got acquainted with them? Or because I know those cats, Garcia and those cats were going in. Not that you worked at Manny's, but those kinds of bands were always in there. Yeah, 
Uh, and I, again, I'm trying to think of how. I, I really am stretching home. you out here. I'm so, so I'm sorry to stretch you out so much. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm just, it's good because it stimulates my, my. Uh, yeah, right. It's good memory. for the memory, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I think I got a call from his manager asking me if I would produce a record. I think that's how that happened. Explain to me why, and I know you didn't have a whole lot to do with this, but the, my favorite bands, the Road Dogs, and I know you're not a Road Dog, believe me, you're a studio rat, but this tour that you're playing, I, I don't know if it's just coincidence, but when I saw the venues, I freaked out because these are all the venues that my friends who are Road Dogs, and believe me, it was never easy, but it's harder than ever now. Um, why did you choose this certain, I mean, San Juan Capistrano, the, the stagecoach, Bunch of stuff, San Luis Obispo. I mean, these All venues. The house, right. Yeah, I mean, very. This is a very interesting tour. I'm just curious about your intention for this tour. You're not li- being a Live Nation cat. You're not, because a lot of this stuff got really blissed out and it's kind of lame now. But you're keeping it pretty accessible. I mean, a lot of these venues, if I could go, I could be right up front in your face. Well, it's fun to play. I mean, I've done. Listen. I, I, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. Uh, I've played in front of 500,000 people. I've done all the, the stadiums and the tours and stuff. And that's all wonderful. Uh, there, there's just something about going out and, you know, playing in a more intimate setting. Maybe it's back to, back to my New York roots. I don't know. Same when I grew up in Mexico City. I mean, I was playing in Mexican rock and roll bands. We were playing clubs. I was only 11 or 12 years old. Actually, Abraham Laboreal and I had a surf band. I want you, I need you to stop. Dude, my, he's my one of my dearest uncles. I cannot believe, because his brother was a, was a, a pop star there, a singer. Abe's, yeah. And then yeah. you're telling me that Abe and you had a surf band in, in Mexico City together. Yeah. Called the Tarantulas. Oh my God! <laughs> now Abe is one of my favorite people on the planet. He's he's one of the most. I'm, I've had the opportunity to be with him personally quite a bit and uh, interview. I love him so much. And Skunk, are you going to be in Arizona at all? Like, I I really would love to come see you play. I know this is like, I'm just curious about is this a one off kind of thing? Are you? For lack of a better word, are you horny to play live? I mean, it seems like you need to get some stuff out of your system. Well, we've done a couple of East Coast tours. We did a Japanese tour uh, late last year, um, or early this year. Uh, And this is our second time down the West Coast. So, yeah, I plan to do... uh, We thought maybe during the winter we'd have a look and see what, uh, you know... Arizona, New Mexico, you know, areas that probably better to travel in, um, you know, while the, while the East Coast, of course, we're about to have a hurricane here, but, you know, while the East Coast is uh, is mired in snow, go down play the South, go play Arizona. Yeah, that's right. You, I mean, I, you live in, you're out in L.A.? or I mean, because, yeah, the hurricane's going to come in. Tucson, we might even get yeah. some flooding, too, here, but... Um, yeah. It would be just great to see you, man. I uh, truly am, I mean, I could go for hours, but um, well, maybe we can do this again sometime, especially if you're going to come to the, come to Zona. But it was really such a high honor to talk to you, man. Well, you're very kind, my friend. I, I appreciate the, the compliment. And, um, 
Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to heading down to the Belly Up and then the Coach House and doing the Troubadour next week. Yeah, the Belly Up, dude. The, the dude, Billy Belly Up. Solano. That, I mean, this is so scrap. I love how scrap iron this is. I know it's not like... I'm just saying the Cats today, man, they're starving to death, man. They don't even make money. I mean, it, I think that, you know, you say that you're the luckiest guy in the world, but I also believe that... As Branch Ricky said, luck is the residue of design, and uh, you always put yourself out there in vulnerable situations. Obviously, you had, but what I feel the most is that, you know, your pops is looking down, and he's certainly proud of, of he's proud of every every chance you took, and all the how you applied all that knowledge, and ultimately, all the people that you've touched through your music, man. So. Have a safe He's trip, a man. Adventurous guy himself. Oh Did my! I cannot imagine what he was like. Did you ever see Mad Men? Yeah. That's him. Your executive vice president of J. Walter Thompson, largest advertising agency in the world. Now he didn't have the issues and all that, but that was that was my dad. That was his world. You just went to Never Everland on me, skunk. Yo, man. Much love to you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for your time and your hospitality. Oh, it's always a pleasure, brother. Be safe, be cool. Roger that. You too. All right, later.